Hello, it's Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece here. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to give a quick podcast recommendation. Today's recommendation is fantastic for parents introducing children to history, or for those already with an interest. But I will turn it over to Paul and James to tell you more. It's summer 1940 and Hitler is winning World War II. Hitler's Nazis controlled nearly all of Europe. Find out what happens here. History. I'm James. And I'm Dad. And Dad and me love history. Why did Henry VIII have so many wives? He liked to chop and change. Today we're tackling the biggest issue in world history. Who invented ice cream? Hi Mark. What are we going to be doing today? Well today you get the opportunity to step into our shoes as Aboriginal people and have a go at spearing something to eat while you're paddling the kayak taking us back to where our old people used to hunt for our own foods check out danielovehistory.com and find us on twitter instagram and facebook and in your podcast app Why sit you doomed ones, fly to the world's end, leaving home and the heights your city circles like a wheel? The head shall not remain in its place, nor the body, nor the feet beneath, nor the hands, nor the parts between, but all is ruined. For fire and the headlong god of war, speeding in a Syrian chariot, shall bring you low, and give to pitiless fire many shrines of gods. Whichever now stands sweating, with feet quivering, while over the rooftops black blood runs streaming in prophecy of woe that needs must come. But rise, haste from the sanctuary, and bow your heads in grief. A prophecy given to Athens in Herodotus' histories. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece. Episode 19, Greece Prepares. Last time, we saw Xerxes gather together the largest invading force that the world had yet seen made up of peoples from all corners of his empire. He defied the natural world by making sure no barriers would hinder his march on Greece. He had bridged the Hellespont so that his army could walk over water from Asia to Europe. He also had a canal dug through the peninsula so that Mount Athos wouldn't bother his fleet with any storms it would whip up. The army set off in April of 481 BC with all of the contingents converging on the bridges of the Hellespont. In May, the entire force had assembled and crossed into Europe where they would then march through Thracian lands, drinking rivers dry and stripping the lands and its peoples of everything they produced. The villagers were hopeful that no delays would hold up the army in their regions, though this all-consuming force, once entering a village, would take over a week before the rear of the army would pass through. While Xerxes had been planning, assembling and beginning the invasion, the Greeks had not been sitting idle. The threat of the Persians had been in most people's minds since the end of Marathon, and especially in Themistocles. We had seen how he had taken steps to move Athenian policy in the direction of the creation of a fleet. But it was now in the last couple of years leading up to the invasion that all of Greece, well those city-states that wanted to take action, attempted to develop a united plan to meet the invasion. As we have seen, the Greeks operated in city-states. This was in effect dozens of independent political entities trying to decide on the best course of action. Helping guide the action that should be taken by each polis would have been the prophecies received at Delphi. With all important matters, cities would be sending delegations to Delphi 
to aid in their decision-making. One can imagine, in the years leading up to Xerxes' invasion, Delphi would have probably seen representatives from just about every polis in Greece seeking guidance in the face of the Persian invasion. We will see a few prophecies given to different cities, but first we will turn to what Athens received. The passage I opened up with in this episode was the first prophecy received by the Athenian delegation. As we heard, it didn't seem very ambiguous at all. Very unusual for Delphi, who seemed to normally cover all bases. What the Athenian delegation emerged from the shrine with was all doom and gloom. They couldn't return to Athens with this. After some discussion and advice from a distinguished man at Delphi, the Athenian delegation lined up at the shrine again to see if they could get a more favourable prophecy. They entered the shrine standing before the priestess with olive branches. Apollo then, through the Pythia, delivered another prophecy. Not wholly can Peleus win the heart of Olympian Zeus, though she prays him with many prayers and all her subtlety. Yet will I speak to you this other word, as firm as a dormant, though all else should be taken within the bounds of Cercrops, and the fastness of the mountains of Scytheron. Yet Zeus, the all-seeing, grants to Athena's prayer, that the wooden wall only shall not fall, but help you and your children. But await not the host of horse and foot coming from Asia, nor be still, but turn your back and withdraw from the foe. Truly a day will come when you will meet face to face. Divine Salamis, you will bring the death to women's sons, when the corn is scattered or the harvest is gathered in. Still not the most positive message, but at least it was something to work with. The delegation recorded the prophecy and then made their journey back to Athens to report what Apollo had revealed to them. On their return, and with the prophecy revealed, the debating on what it meant began. Two main interpretations emerged, one believing that the wooden wall that was referred to was the old thorn hedge that had enclosed the Acropolis in times of old. This they believed, if reinforced, would see that the Acropolis would be spared. The other was that the wooden wall actually meant the Athenian fleet that Themistocles had successfully won over the public in supporting the construction of. Though, if this second interpretation was to be followed, one of the last lines made the supporters very nervous. Divine Salamis, you will bring the death to women's sons. It was thought that this would mean the defeat at sea, since the island of Salamis lay off the coast of Attica, not far from Athens' port. At this point, Themistocles came forward to offer his interpretation and to calm the people's nerves. He said that surely, if the prophecy was referring to their sons, it would not have used the word divine, but rather something gloomier. He believed Apollo spoke this line in reference to their enemy. Also, as we would expect, he added that he believed that the Athenian ships to be the wooden wall that would not fall. Apparently the professionals in divine matters had also been working on the prophecy and had come to the conclusion that Athens should be abandoned and a new city elsewhere should be established. Though the majority agreed with what Themistocles had put forward and accepted that they put their fate in the hands of the Athenian fleet. This was hardly a strategy in how to fight the Persians and this time around one city-state wouldn't be able to defend the whole of Greece like at Marathon. To have any chance against the Persians this time around, the Greeks would need to unite and agree on how to meet Xerxes' forces. In 481 BC, the city-states that were prepared to resist the Persians met at the Isthmus of Corinth, and in later times this collection of polis would be known as the Hellenic League. Delegates from only a fraction of the city-states in Greek lands, affected by Xerxes' campaign, attended with the Athenians and Spartans being the most influential. It doesn't appear that any clear strategy in dealing with the Persians came out of this first meeting, but some first steps were taken to create a more informed and united coalition. 
Firstly, there were many quarrels and outright open hostilities existing between many of the city-states. One of the longest tensions existed between Athens and Aegina, due to both of their influence exerting into the same sea area. They, as well as other polis, decided to put aside their differences for now and focus on the common enemy. If the Greeks were to act as one and have any chance at meeting the Persians as a united force, they would need to put aside any differences they once had. Well, for now anyway. At this meeting also, the decision to send out spies to get an idea of the Persian forces was taken. These were the spies that we spoke of last episode, who were captured but instead of being executed, Xerxes had given them a full tour of the camp his army occupied. Once Xerxes was happy that they had an idea of what they were going to be marching against, he allowed them to return to Greece with what they had learnt. It is also thought that this could be the origin of the numbers given in Herodotus' account, an official roster of the Persian army provided by the Persians themselves. Leadership of the defence of Greece needed to be put in place so that the different polos could all act as one united force. In this point of time, Sparta was considered to be the strongest power in the Greek lands, plus they had a large backing from the other Peloponnesians that were part of the League. The cities in the Peloponnese made up the majority of the League's members at this stage, and supported Sparta's bid for command over that of any other polis, including Athens. Their command of the land forces seemed to be a straightforward choice due to their reputation of the army. The navy, though, would be commanded by a Spartan, even though they only made up less than 20 of the 321 ships deployed. Again, Sparta's backing by the other polis had helped their argument for taking command, plus it was thought not advisable to give command to the Athenians who made up the majority of the fleet, as it was thought the navy would end up being used for Athenian interests, not taking into account all of Greece or perhaps, more likely, Peloponnesian interests. It would seem that Themistocles and other contingent commanders would have some bearing on strategy, as they would come together to vote and voice their views on the best course of action. As we will see as the campaign progresses, Herodotus gives the impression that Themistocles would really shape the strategy at sea. Lastly, although they had set up a league with this first meeting, they decided that officials should be sent to other regions to try and secure more allies in the coming campaign there were still some relatively strong regions and neighbours who could bolster their armies and navies who had not yet committed. Argos was Sparta's long-time rival in the Peloponnese, but the League needed some more support, so they sought Argos to join the alliance against Persia, though more likely the Spartans were looking to call out their rival's willingness to side with the Persians and expose them to the rest of the League. Ultimately, Argos would not join the Hellenic League, with conflicting reasons explaining their decision. Supposedly early on, as the crisis was developing, the Aggrieves had sent delegates to Delphi to seek advice on their best course of action. The prophecy they received told them, Hated by your neighbours, but dear to the gods immortal, hold your spear withdrawn, and on your guard sit still. Keep your head well guarded, and it will save the body. Though with this response to hold back and stay on the defensive, Argos still offered to join the League once envoys had arrived but on a couple of provisos. They were probably looking to call Sparta's bluff and provided conditions they knew Sparta would not accept. Firstly, they wanted a 30-year peace between the Spartans, as it had been less than a generation since their last battle, where they lost 6,000 men against the Spartans. Secondly, they wanted the command of half the league, even though they thought they were entitled to command all of it. One would think that the first demand would have been accepted, as other tensions between polis had been put aside but to give them the command that they sought was not going to be accepted from Sparta's point of view. But this was the justification given by Argos to explain their refusal to join the alliance. 
It's also worth noting a rumour had been circulating around Greece that Xerxes had sent an invoice to Argos and had secured a friendship with them. Later on, it was said that evidence was discovered at Susa, which showed that an agreement had been made between the two. So Argos would fail to provide assistance to the Hellenic League, but envoys were also sent to Crete and Kosara. Crete, once asked to join the alliance, sent off their own delegation to Delphi to seek the best course of action. They had asked if they should assist in the defence of Greece, and the reply they received was, You foolish men who complain of all the tears of wrath that Minos sent you when the Hellenes failed to join you in avenging his death at Kamakos. This was in reference to the campaign the Cretans undertook into Sicily back in the Bronze Age, which Herodotus tells us about, and we brought up in our episode on the Minoans. Although you had joined the Hellenes and helped to defend Menelaus for the sake of the woman abducted from Sparta by a barbarian. With this response, Crete decided not to become involved in the coming struggle. Kosara, the island off the west coast of northern Greece, on the other hand, were enthusiastic about joining the League when the envoys had arrived. But when it came time to sail, they were reluctant and decided to hedge their bets, beaching their 60 ships near Pylos. They awaited for the outcome of the campaign with stories prepared for whichever side had won. Though they thought the Greeks had little chance, they would tell the Persians that they had been forcibly recruited to the cause, but they were able to prevent their large fleet, only second to that of Athens being employed against them. This, they thought, would please the Persians, though in the unlikely event that the Greeks were victorious, they would tell them that the winds were unfavourable and prevented them from reaching the chosen place of battle in time. Another potential ally was sought who would be able to provide large contingents of troops and ships, helping bolster the Greek numbers dramatically. The envoy sailed to the island of Syracuse, on the island of Sicily, south of Italy, where they met with its tyrant, Galon. The Greeks put their case to Galon, telling him joining the alliance would also be protecting Sicily, as if Greece fell, they would be next. Galon countered the Greeks by bringing up their refusal in coming to his aid against the Carthaginians who were originally a Phoenician colony, when Syracuse was protecting its trading ports that also benefited Greece. Galon, though, presented himself as the bigger man and offered his assistance. He told the Greeks he would provide 200 triremes, 20,000 hoplites, 2,000 cavalry, and 4,000 light troops, as well as feeding all of the forces for the duration of the war. He outlined only one condition, that he should be in command of the entire Greek force, or as Herodotus puts in his mouth, I would neither go myself nor send others. This condition was unacceptable to the Greeks, and after some more exchanges, Galen offered a compromise of taking command of either the navy or the army. This again was unacceptable. The Greeks didn't want a foreign tyrant, although of a Greek background, controlling the forces within Greece. Herodotus also relates that during the campaign, Galen had sent a trusted man with huge amounts of money to the Greek mainland. His mission was that if the Persians won, he would offer Xerxes the riches as well as earth and water. Though if the Greeks won, he would return with the money to Syracuse. This is the story that the Greeks circulated about Galon's refusal in aiding their league. Though it appears that Galon may have had other factors to take into account. Herodotus also provides another, perhaps more realistic reason for Galon not joining the league. He simply could not afford to due to him facing his own threats. During Xerxes' campaign, Hamilcar, a Carthaginian king with a large mixed force, landed at Sicily. Supposedly when the Greeks won their naval battle at Salamis is when Galon defeated Hamilcar at their decisive battle. History does record Hamilcar's invasion, which took place around the same time as Xerxes' campaign. 
it has been suggested that Xerxes had made contacts with Carthage and ensured that the Syracusans would be tied up with their own war. Remembering that Carthage was a Phoenician colony and Phoenicia was now part of the Persian Empire. We will probably look more closely at Galon and Syracuse a little later on in the series, as I plan to look at what was happening on the periphery of the Greek world leading up to and during the Greek and Persian Wars. With the agenda items from the first meeting of the League completed or exhausted in the case of the additional allies, a second Congress of Corinth would now take place in 480, just as word had arrived of the Persians crossing into Europe. With Xerxes' forces now entering Europe and on the march west, the Greek states met once again at Corinth, this time with the discussions revolving on how best to defend Greece. This time around, one of the most northern regions had sent delegates as theirs would be the first territory that had not yet submitted that the Persians would march into. Thessaly shared its northern border with Macedonia, who had come to an arrangement with the Persians. The envoy from Thessaly put a case forward for the Greeks to make a stand as far north as the border that they shared with Macedonia, or else they would have no choice but to come to an arrangement themselves with the Persians. In response to the Thessalian pleas, the rest of the Congress decided that they would send a force of around 10,000 hoplites to defend the pass at Mount Olympus, known as the Pass of Tempe, in the northeast. The force appears to be mostly made up of Athenians and Spartans, or other Lacedaemonians, as we only hear of two commanders, Themistocles in command of the Athenians, and Euryanos commanding the Lacedaemonians, or Spartans. It's hard to tell if the Spartan force was at all sizable. This has been raised as a point since the commander was not one of the Spartan kings, so perhaps the force was made up of other Lacedaemonians, not full Spartiotes. The Greek army assembled and boarded ships which would take them up the eastern coastline, coming ashore just south of Thessaly. The Hoplites then marched up to the Tempe Pass, where they would meet the cavalry of the Thessalians. The Greeks were not known for their cavalry, but the Thessalians were an exception to this view, as they were considered some of the best cavalry that the Greeks could muster. The large open plains in Thessaly, which suited horse riding, most likely led to their competency in this arm. They made their camp at the Panios River, which flowed through the pass into the sea. After a couple of days of establishing themselves at the pass, messengers arrived into the Greek camp from Macedon. Even though they were assisting Xerxes, they came with a warning to not engage the Persians, as the force bearing down on them was so great, they would have no hope. It is also presumed that they would have informed the defenders of another pass at Mount Olympus that the Greeks were not aware of, and would see their position outflanked. The League's force decided that the advice given by the Macedonians was in good faith and came to the conclusion that their position was untenable and a new plan was needed. It is also worth noting that if the Greeks had managed to hold the Persians up for a time, this would have seen them delayed in Macedonian territory, where the Macedonians would have been expected to provide provisions. In their eyes, even though they had submitted to them, the faster they moved through their territory, the better. Though how much of a factor this was in their thinking when warning the Greeks at the pass is unclear, as ultimately the Persians would take the pass that the Greeks had not been defending. Much to the disappointment of Thessaly, the League broke camp and marched back to their ships. They set sail back to the Isthmus of Corinth, where hopefully a new course of action could be arranged before the Persians marched south into Greece. What resulted from this regrouping at the Isthmus is what appears to be a more coherent strategy although there were still other factors that helped shape the response. If the Peloponnesians, who made up the majority of the league, had it their way, the main defensive line would have been on the Isthmus itself. This course of action didn't address the fact that the Persians were operating with a combined land and naval force, 
which could see the wall outflanked, with the amphibious landings using the fleet. So it was important that the Greeks also had a fleet that could challenge the Persians, and the largest contingent in the Greek fleet was that of the Athenians. They wouldn't endorse this plan which would have left Athens effectively an open city to the Persians. A plan was settled upon that would see the Greeks use a land and naval force in tandem to counter the Persians. The first half of the plan involved a land force which would march to the pass of Thermopylae, south of Thessaly in the region of Phocis. Thermopylae translates to hot gates and it got its name due to the natural hot water springs in the area and the passes or gates that were created due to the mountains coming down and almost meeting the gulf in a number of places. At some points the pass was only around 15 metres wide, a great place to nullify an army superior in numbers. Today though the coast has been silted up and lays a number of kilometres from where the battle took place. The Hollywood movie 300 and many popular retellings of this battle gives the impression that only 300 Spartan hoplites fought here, but around 7,000 Greeks from a number of regions marched and prepared to defend the pass. More than half of this land force will be made up of Peloponnesians, with the rest coming from regions closer to Thermopylae. The Athenians were not part of the land force as they had mustered all of their manpower to crew the large fleet they possessed. The numbers here for the army seem quite small considering the threat faced and compared to the 10,000 hoplites at Marathon in 490 and the force sent to Tempe a couple of months earlier. Here though, religious festivals would come into play affecting the number of troops deployed. The Olympic festival that took place every four years was now in progress. This wasn't just an athletic competition, like in modern times, but the arts featured heavily and like most festivals in Greece, it was highly religious. Many men would have been on the roads travelling to Olympia on the Peloponnese and taking part in different elements of the festival. Another festival which saw only a small fraction of the Spartan army deployed was that of the Carnea, the same festival which had seen the Spartans arrive too late to take part at the Battle of Marathon. The 300 Spartan hoplites that would be sent were chosen due to the fact that they had each had a living son that was left behind to carry on their family line. This may be suggestive of the nature of the task that they were sending their small force to. It may seem silly to us that taking part in a religious festival would prevent an effective mobilisation to take place, but this was a very different world where superstitions were taken very seriously and one did not want to risk offending the gods. Also, the ancient works left to us present the Spartans as extremely pious people, with the archaeological sites today confirming this view. Commanding this force was one of the two Spartan kings, named Leonidas. He has gone down in history as one of the most recognisable Spartan figures. But outside of Thermopylae, not much is known about him. At the time of Thermopylae, it is thought that Leonidas was between 50 and 60 years old. From birth, Leonidas was not expected to become king, as he was the third youngest out of four male siblings. His father, Anaxadridas II, ended up taking a second wife, as it was thought that his first wife was unable to conceive. With his second wife, he fathered a son, who they called Cleomenes. But not long after, he ended up having three sons with his first wife. Dorius, Leonidas, and Cleombrotus. Cleomenes would succeed the kingship after his father's death, much to the displeasure of Dorius, who then left Sparta to attempt to establish colonies afar in Africa and Italy. Though during his time in Italy, he would meet his end during one of these attempts. In our episode on Sparta and Athens, we met Cleomenes, and we saw the quarrels between himself and his co-king Demaratus and ultimately his plot to have Demaratus deposed. Though eventually this plot was discovered and he was imprisoned. During his imprisonment, 
he apparently went mad and committed suicide. Though it has long been thought a plot by the man who would succeed him was another likely explanation for his death. Leonidas, who had also married Gorgo, Cleomenes' daughter, was now the next in line for the throne on the Agiad side of the ruling lines, and became king in 489 BC. The second part of the plan involved the Greek fleet, which was also commanded by a Spartan named Eurybiades, even though their contingent only made up a small fraction of the total fleet. Eurybiades wasn't one of the Spartan kings, and reportedly not from either of the royal lines. Remembering here that under Spartan law, only one of the kings could be out on campaign at a time. Not much else is known about Eurybiades' background, as we only hear about him through his involvement in the Salamis campaign. This initial fleet was made up of 324 triremes, according to Herodotus, and was set sail to take up position at a place called the Straits of Artemisium. The Athenian contingent was made up of around 200 of the ships that would set sail, with 11 other polis making up the remainder. The Straits ran between the island of Euboea and the Greek mainland, before exiting out into the Aegean Sea. The Greek fleet set up base on Euboea, at Pevki Bay, some 64 kilometres northeast of Thermopylae. Although this area of the Straits wasn't the narrowest, it allowed the Greeks to challenge the Persian fleet if they tried to sail in the Aegean, around the eastern shore of Euboea, or if they attempted to land on the island. Their position also blocked the Persians from attempting to land reinforcements south of Thermopylae, outflanking the position. Also, occupying this position denied the Persians one of the best harbours and access to a large source of fresh water in the region. Since the Persians were shadowing their army on land, it seemed likely that the fleet would make for the straits so as to stay in contact. Breaking away to sail around the eastern coast of Euboea would fly in the face of their invasion plans, and would be a much riskier voyage as opposed to the calmer waters of the straits. This revised plan would now see the Greeks able to provide obstacles to both the Persian army and fleet, preventing them from easily supporting one another in their engagements. The positions of Artemisium and Thermopylae would also enable the Greeks to maintain contact between their forces so they would be aware of each other's situations. The overall strategic plan of the Greeks is hard to gather from Herodotus' account. One of the most popular views is that the land force was sent out to delay the Persians long enough so that a much larger force of all of the Hellenistic League members could be assembled after the completion of the festivals currently in progress. Though what is unclear is if Leonidas' forces set out with the knowledge that they were intending to be martyrs for the cause or were they setting out with the belief that they would hold the pass long enough until a larger army would reinforce their position while they still held it. Herodotus' account provides reasoning that would go to support both of these viewpoints, as we shall see as the story continues. It was now August of 480 BC, and the Greeks had put in place a plan of defence as best they could. More Greek city-states had supported or were marching on the side of the Persians than were members of the Hellenic League. The Greek fleet was beached at the picturesque bay of modern-day Pevki. Lookouts had been sent out north with instructions to light signal fires which would announce the approach of the Persians. Also, to make sure the Persian fleet did not elude them, three scout ships were sent out to detect the advancing fleet. Though it was going to be difficult to miss such a large armada, the Persians with 1,207 ships, according to Rodotus, as well as another 120 joining them on their journey through the regions, who had or would meet eyes. As large as this fleet was, the historian Barry Strauss has likened it to a floating tower of Babel. Communication and coordination was going to be a challenge with so many different peoples of the Persian Empire, speaking different languages, making up the contingents. 
The Greeks waiting in the straits had just 324 ships to oppose them. The Greeks though shared a common language and culture as well as fighting for their freedom. Hopefully this would outweigh the rivalries and disputes between themselves. Being so vastly outnumbered, the Greeks would need a firm and resolute leader to emerge with a touch of cunning, while also meeting the Persians with superior tactics and strategy, and perhaps a little help from the gods wouldn't go astray. Leonidas had set out from Sparta with his 300 Spartans, joining up with the other contingents along the way and at Thermopylae, where 7,000 Greeks would prepare to block the hundreds of thousands of Xerxes' troops in the narrow passes. With their arrival, Leonidas had become aware of a trail through the mountains which could potentially outflank their position. Though, unlike the pass at Tempe, the Greek force would stay and defend the pass at Thermopylae. Leonidas reasoned that this was only a narrow trail which could be easily defended. Plus, where could they fall back to? And Spartans don't flee in the face of danger. With all the Spartans remembering the words that would be reportedly uttered to them as they departed for war by their mothers or female relatives. Come back on it or with it. This referred to the shield or aspis that they carried. To effectively retreat in the face of the enemy, one would need to dispense with their heavy aspis. To return home without it would be a disgrace. Though if a Spartan was carried by his comrades laying dead on his aspis, it would show that he had stood his ground to the last and shown himself a truly worthy Spartan. Back during the preparations for the defence of Greece, the city-states had had their envoys travelling the roads throughout Greece to Delphi getting advice on what action they should take. Sparta had also consulted the oracle at Delphi during this time to see what their response should be. Prophecy wasn't as bad as the ones received by the other city-states like that of Athens, but the words that were spoken would still be in the back of one man's mind, Leonidas. Either Sparta would be laid waste by the invaders or a Spartan king had to die. It was clear what had to be done, as a Spartan existed for Sparta. We will end the episode with what the Spartans had been told by the priests at Delphi. Hear your fate, O dwellers at Sparta of the wide open spaces. Either your famed great town must be sacked by Perseus' sons, or, if that be not, the whole of Lacedaemon shall mourn the death of a king of the house of Heracles. For not the strength of lions or of bulls should hold him. Strength against strength, for he has the power of Zeus, and will not be checked till one of these two he has consumed. Thank you for your continued support. If you have been enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcasting platform. They go a long way into helping support the show. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 20, The Battle of Thermopylae.